You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. My aunt and uncle are from Missouri. So is my mom. And so you know what they say, show me. They won't believe it unless there's proof, hard proof. Right. So I guess you'd think that Bluetooth technology wouldn't take off in the show me state. How do I know for sure those sounds are going in your ear? I don't see any wires. Show me the wires. But of course, that's not the case. Even though they can't see the radio waves, Missourians, like everyone else, use Bluetooth and microwaves and the whole lot. Well, there are just plenty of phenomena we can't see, but we know exist, and we even know how they behave. We can build devices to reveal their presence and determine their properties. We can't detect viruses with our five senses, but using microscopes, we can see them. We know the structure of atoms, even though no one has ever seen an atom. The inside of an atom is an invisible universe. And we've done a pretty good job in the last hundred years or so, turning the invisible visible. And when we do, worlds of possibilities open up. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. It's Invisible Worlds on Big Picture Science. What is this thing? It's an asteroid, sir. It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. What kind of damage? Total, sir. My God. Okay, so who could miss seeing a big rock flying at you from space, as it did in the disaster movie extraordinaire Armageddon, a rock that had all of our names on it. But here's the point. What's more solid and visible to the eye than a hunk of rock? And yet, some of the biggest threats to our lifestyle, our well-being, come from rocks we can't see. Yet. Our ancestors didn't have telescopes, so they couldn't see trouble hurtling their way. But today, computers and digital photography have joined forces to give us highly sophisticated instruments to find asteroids that might threaten our planet. These rocks have caused big problems in the past, as any dinosaur could tell you. Except, of course, they can't, since they're not around anymore, unless you count birds. Of course, we do count birds. Anyway, we've done a decent job of tracking the big near-Earth asteroids. Those are the ones whose paths could put them on a collision course for Earth. But the smaller ones, smaller than about a kilometer in size, well, most of those we still don't know about. However, asteroids are something that NASA space scientist and SETI researcher Dave Morrison does know about. Dave, asteroids are the threat that is invisible until they're made visible. When do asteroids become visible to us? We have telescopes that are able to survey the skies and find thousands of near-Earth asteroids that would be otherwise invisible. If we didn't have the telescopes, if we didn't carry out the survey, the first time they would be visible is about three seconds before they hit. Okay, so they're they're near-Earth asteroids. You said, what is near-Earth? The near-Earth asteroids are asteroids whose orbits bring them close to the Earth, They intertwine with the Earth's orbit. There are many thousands of them up there who are at least potentially capable of hitting the Earth. Ah, so the first time an astronomer sees or or detects an asteroid, how does it appear to him or to her? As as a dot? As a, what is it? We don't look through telescopes at asteroids. These surveys are highly automated. We use electronic CCD cameras. Computers analyze the images. What you're looking for is indeed a very faint dot that moves against the background of tens of thousands of stars. So it takes a computer to find it. How many asteroids do we know of, and how many are a threat to Earth, and how are those different questions? We have done surveys that have pretty well found the large near-Earth asteroids, which are the biggest threat. And we have found 10,000 so far. But there are close to half a million others 
that could do a lot of damage if they hit us that we have not yet found. Are we talking about the kind of destruction that was caused by the rock that hit this planet 65 million years ago, wiped out nearly all of life and certainly the dinos? Is that the kind of threat that we're looking at? The nature of the threat depends very critically on how big the object is. The asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs was about 10 miles in diameter. I can tell you, I am happy to tell you, that there are no asteroids that big now in near-Earth or or Earth-approaching orbits. So we are not in danger of going the way of the dinosaurs. However, However, there are objects out there that are big enough if they hit that they could plunge the world into a year of blackness and cause perhaps a billion deaths. There are many, many more smaller ones that could still wipe out a city. Now, is is the destruction mainly from the impact itself, or is it all the stuff that's kicked up into the atmosphere? The impact itself can be extremely damaging. It's like a big hydrogen bomb going off. And so that's the end if you're anywhere close. But the big danger that affects the whole Earth, the global risk, is from kicking huge amounts of dust into the atmosphere, which block the sun, and which can spread over the whole Earth. So you are at risk even if the impact takes place on the other side of the Earth. But as opposed to the time of the dinosaurs, we can do something about it. The dinosaurs didn't have many tools at their disposal. I can't think of one tool that they could have used to, to divert uh, an asteroid. But what are our options for diverting one? Please tell me we have some. <laughs> the dinosaurs lacked two things. They did not have telescopes to see them coming, and they didn't have a space program to divert them. In principle, we have both. We are focusing now on finding them so we can see them coming. If you don't discover them, then any other talk about defense is meaningless. In the future, if we do discover one that will hit the Earth in perhaps a year or a decade or a century, then we have the technology in principle to send a spacecraft out and slightly nudge it, alter its orbit so it will miss. It's the only natural hazard that we can completely eliminate by causing the asteroid that was going to hit us to miss. So the idea is if you nudge it slightly, and you don't need to nudge it that much, by the time that it reaches Earth, that nudge has become a real arc, and it swings away from our planet. That's exactly right. If we make a small alteration of the orbit decades before it was to hit the Earth, then it will miss. Of course, if you found it only at the last minute, a few weeks before it hit, there's nothing you can do. Now, if I draw on my knowledge of asteroids, which comes predominantly from the film Armageddon, (laughs) I know, I see you cringing, but I know it comes up in every one of these interviews. Now, wasn't one of the choices in that film to blow the asteroid up? And that's a problem because now you have many projectiles, basically buckshot, right? It goes from a cannonball to being a cluster bomb. And that's not good. If you blew it up far, far away, then the pieces would be dispersed and wouldn't do much damage. But you know, the problem with Hollywood is you can't have a film that covers many decades. It's all got to be compressed. So they had this very artificial situation of finding the incoming object at the last minute and trying to do something. And the fact is there's nothing you can do at the last minute. Right. I think they had 18 days to work with in that film. They also said it was larger than Texas, which is absolutely crazy. NASA, by the way, has used the movie Armageddon in some of its training sessions to see if people can find out how many technical errors there are. I know one number was 160 complete technical errors. I'm sure there are many more if you look carefully. Are you tired of providing corrective to the movie Armageddon and having that be the only source of knowledge (laughs) the public has about asteroids? I always recommend that people see the movie Deep Impact, which came out the same year and which is one of the most technically accurate films that's ever been made on a scientific topic. It is more or less correct. That's actually good to hear. Okay, so so to clear it up, it sounds like we would have, you said, maybe as much as a year. Now, is a year a long time to be able to do what we need to to deflect an asteroid, or do we have to hustle? We think the minimum for a deflection is probably 10 years warning, because you'd have to get the rocket ready, launch it. It has to get to the asteroid and give it a shove, and this all has to be accomplished so that that little bit of change in speed can accumulate over time so that it will, in fact, miss the Earth. Do we have our eyes on any particular rocks right now? We have 
about 10,000 asteroids in our catalog, and we keep track of the orbit of each of them. In fact, you can go to a website at JPL and see those orbits and predictions of any close passages. They are updated every day as new data come in. It's completely transparent. And you could make your own judgment. But from the perspective of the scientists doing it, there are no objects up there now that are of interest that need to be worried about for the future. There are a lot more we haven't seen than the ones we have seen. The danger is from the objects we don't know, not from the objects we do. Finally, Dave, for four billion years, life on Earth has been vulnerable to the catastrophe uh, imposed by an asteroid. But now that we're here, we have this space program. As you said, it's one that was finer than the ones that the dinos had since they didn't have one. Is the threat of asteroids like that of smallpox something that once was but will never again threaten life on Earth? The threat is just as big as ever. The fact that we have astronomy and telescopes and rockets does nothing to keep an asteroid from beheaded tortoise. That's just what nature does. And so over time, we are sure we will be hit, just as frequently as in the past, unless we intervene. Just finding them isn't enough. We would have to build the rockets and give them a shove and change their orbits, which is a little bit beyond what we can do right now. Dave Morrison, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Dave Morrison is a NASA space scientist and director of the Carl Sagan Center at the SETI Institute. As much as we may not always see what's coming, we may be blind to what is leaving us as well. Scientists have a name for the startling disappearance of honeybees, colony collapse disorder, but it describes the symptoms, not the cause. There are a number of theories about why one-third of bee colonies have suddenly disappeared. Parasitic mites, pesticides, the rise of monocultures in agriculture. But we may not see what we really lose when these buzzing hymenoptera go away, says May Berenbaum, an entomologist at the University of Illinois. We're used to grabbing food at the grocery store, and it isn't always obvious the role these striped pollinators play in keeping fields healthy and the foods we love best on our table. May, we talk about colony collapse, uh, but what's the magnitude of this collapse? What fraction of bees have gone missing? Well, you'd be surprised how difficult it is sometimes to count bees. In fact, that's an enterprise we've been a little bit sloppy about since bee decline attracted attention. But the latest results from a systematic survey conducted by the Apiary Inspectors of America revealed a loss of about a third of America's colonies over the last winter. And America has about two and a half million colonies. So over the last winter, I mean, but didn't this collapse begin many years ago? The first disturbing accounts of a mysterious, seemingly new phenomenon emerged in uh, late 2006. So that first winter, that winter of 2006 and 7, really marks the beginning of what has come to be known as colony collapse disorder. All right. And colony collapse disorder, I mean, that sounds like a very Latinate way of saying that (laughs) the bees die, right? And they don't just die. In fact, that's what was so disturbing to so many people, including beekeepers. They just go missing. They disappear. Bees die all the time from all kinds of mortality agents, particularly pesticides, for example. They'll die in big piles in front of the hive. But these bees, uh, the foragers, the oldest and most experienced members of the colony, were just not coming home. And that's very unbee-like behavior. Bees, as you know, are highly social animals. They have a very elaborate social structure, and they are driven to serve the needs of the colony. So very unlike bees to fly off and not come home again. But when you say they don't come home, I mean, it isn't that, you know, we're going to turn over a rock somewhere and find, you know, hundreds of millions of bees. It's not that they're living somewhere else, right? I mean, they're presumably gone. Something happened to them when they were out and about. Right. Nobody knows exactly. There were no corpses. That's the problem. It's hard to do forensic work on a bee death or an autopsy if you don't have bodies. I see. So just to put this in context for listeners who don't see bees as anything other than something to be avoided if you're at the swimming pool. How how important are these bees? How much does this colony collapse disorder affect our lifestyle? 
the bee in question in terms of colony collapse disorder is a species called Apis mellifera. It's the western honeybee. And this bee is incredibly important to U.S. agriculture, in fact, to global agriculture, because it is the world's premier managed pollinator. What that means is when we Americans grow crops, these crops, in order to produce fruits and seeds, need to reproduce. So they depend on animal partners for pollination. Honeybees are the world's best managed pollinators. We can raise them in boxes, pick them up, put them in the back of a truck, drive them to an almond orchard, to a clover field, and deliver pollination services when the plants need them. So bees contribute to the production of over 90 crops in the U.S., amounting to over $15 billion worth of agriculture. So if I walked into my local uh, supermarket, uh, what sort of crops would I see there and not recognize them as the result of... uh getting some bee help. Anything there that's good for you (laughs) probably has a bee involved. So avocados to zucchinis, most fruits, most nuts, almonds, for example, every almond is the product of a bee pollination event. We have no other way in the U.S. to produce almonds without bringing in bees to pollinate them. And we are the world's leading producers of almonds. There's something like 800,000 acres of almonds planted in California, and that's a $3.5 billion industry. All depends on honeybees. So what's the situation now? It seems that uh, from articles you see in the papers that they seem to be zeroing in on what causes colony collapse disorder. Well, I'm not sure I'd use the number zero, uh, among other reasons. It's been difficult to refute any of these principal hypotheses. Now, in the past six years, there's been a a remarkable scale-up of research about honeybees. And what we've learned is we actually did not know a lot about honeybees, despite the fact these have been semi-domesticated for at least since the time of the pharaohs. And we've been exploiting honeybees for honey for about 10,000 years. Basic biology we didn't know about. But Since the sequencing of the honeybee genome in 2006, about a dozen new pathogens, viral pathogens, have been identified and bacterial pathogens. It's clear that there are pesticide exposures that are causing mortality. There are interactions among these factors. It's also clear that high fructose corn syrup is not honey as far as bees are concerned and may compromise their immune system and detoxification system. In other words, it seems to be complicated. So... Is the fix in yet? Are are we doing anything about this, or do we just say, well, you know, raise more bees? Well, that's one thing, raise more bees. But another thing that will help all pollinators is to provide a more diversified landscape. doesn't matter if they're bees that are being transported by beekeepers or if they are resident bumblebees or there are thousands of bee species, about four to 5,000 bee species in the United States, not to mention other pollinators like butterflies, flies, all kinds of insects are involved in pollination. If there are floral resources, then whatever the other stresses may be, they will be better able to cope with them. So good nutrition is sort of foundational to dealing with pesticides, diseases. So we have to keep in mind that our concept of weed has no biological definition. A weed is just a plant growing where someone doesn't want it. In fact, from the bee's perspective, weeds are a lot better than a lot of cultivated plants because they provide pollen and nectar. So everyone, I hope, can be a little more tolerant of weeds Also, there have been discussions in Congress about expanding conservation programs that actually reward growers for setting aside land for conservation. It's a real challenge, at least in part, because commodity prices like corn are so high that it's very unprofitable for farmers to leave land in natural vegetation. So it may be economically not profitable, but in terms of sustainability, long-term survival, it's really important to have resources for not just honeybees, but all kinds of pollinators. May Berenbaum, thank you so very much for talking with me. Thank you. May Berenbaum is an entomologist at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. Well, what you can't see includes a prediction of Einstein's theory of general relativity, gravity waves. Do they exist, and can we find them? It's Invisible Worlds on Big Picture Science.
This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. An innovative astronomy project may help detect a phenomenon predicted by Einstein but not yet observed. It's the kind of thing that wins Nobel Prizes, but, but I'm getting ahead of the story. First, imagine jumping in a lake. Everyone's familiar with the kind of waves that are produced, even cavemen, I'm sure. But after the Renaissance, some people realized that sound was just a wave phenomenon too pressure waves in the air. Then sometime around the Civil War, a Scottish physicist named James Maxwell worked out the equations that related magnetism and electricity. And voila, the Scottish physicist, who probably spoke French too, <laughs> predicted the existence of electromagnetic waves. You tune in those electromagnetic waves when you switch on the tube. We know them today as light, radio, infrared, ultraviolet, and so forth. But there was yet another step in this wavy saga. About 100 years ago, Albert Einstein worked out general relativity. Big Al's theory described the large-scale behavior of the cosmos, the whole shebang, the big view. And general relativity predicted a new kind of wave— gravity waves. But here's the difference. Unlike all those other waves, we've never measured or even detected a gravity wave. For all we know, they don't exist. Except, of course, we think they do exist. Now, enter pulsars. Pulsars. They were discovered in the late 1960s. They're rotating balls of neutrons and are the highly dense corpses left over from massive stars that have run out of fuel. If you have a star that's half again more massive than the sun, at the end of its life it explodes in a supernova, and what's left over, which is a ball no bigger than downtown Pittsburgh, is the pulsar. That's pretty big still. Well, compared to Uniontown, yes. We can find these dead stars because they broadcast light and radio waves into space. And they pulse because they spin so gosh darn fast. They're like super speed lighthouses. And pulsar discoveries have already garnered two Nobel Prizes. So is a third on the way? Astronomer Scott Ransom and his team at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Charlottesville, Virginia, hope to get the gold with a project called Nanograv, detecting those up to now unobservable gravity waves by making use of flashing pulsars among nature's most precise timekeepers. The type of pulsars that I study, which are the so-called millisecond pulsars, they're extraordinary stable clocks, and they're really not clocks, but because they give off little ticks in time, we call them clocks. And the reason why they're so stable is that these things are gigantic flywheels in space. And if you think about it, space is basically a vacuum, and if you take something extraordinarily massive, and these things are, they're more massive than every single thing in our solar system added together, including the sun and all the planets and all the gas, scrunch it all down together to the size of something the size of a city, and basically you get a gigantic nucleus. That's what a neutron star is. And then if you send that spinning up to hundreds of times per second, and that's what millisecond pulsars spin, uh, they can spin that fast hundreds of times per second, there's nothing to really slow them down, so they spin perfectly. And the pulsations we get from those rotations come like beautiful, ultra-precise clock ticks. Now, some people have won Nobel Prizes for the research on pulsars, what were they doing that was worth a Nobel Prize? Yes, so the Nobel Prize is a word that comes up uh, with pulsars a lot, and that's because the great story of their discovery, uh, where Anthony Hewish won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of pulsars. But then the second Nobel Prize came with pulsars about 15 years ago when Joe Taylor and Russell Hulse 
they had found the first binary pulsar. And this is a pulsar that it spins tens of times per second, but it has another companion star, and they orbit each other. And that companion star is another neutron star, it turns out. And they were able to use these neutron stars, which were orbiting each other, to test the theory of general relativity by Einstein. And it turned out it passed with flying colors, and uh, they ended up with a Nobel Prize. Now, Scott, you want to use pulsars not to study pulsars, really. You want to use them as a tool to detect gravity waves. So tell me something about gravity waves. I I think these are a a predicted phenomenon. That's correct. So gravitational waves are thought to be generated just like you generate waves on a surface of a pond when you throw a rock in that causes waves to ripple. Well, you can create waves in space-time itself. Basically, space expands and contracts if we throw the right kind of rock into space-time. And the way we do that is by simply moving massive, massive objects. So if you take an object like a very massive black hole and you jiggle it, it causes ripples in space-time to move away from where you jiggled that mass. And this is very much like also you generate electromagnetic waves. If you take an electron, which is what generates most electromagnetic waves, and you wiggle it back and forth, you get a radio wave. If you wiggle it super fast, you get an optical light photon. Gravitational waves are exactly the same, but in gravity, just by wiggling very, very massive objects. Why would it be cool to detect these things? Well, it would be cool to detect them because... Number one, it's a one of the only parts of Einstein's theory of relativity that has not been basically directly observed. So general relativity predicts that there are these gravitational waves that flow through the universe, but we've never been able to see them. The reason for that is the second reason why these would be cool to detect, because these are extraordinarily weak, faint, tiny waves. The amount of change in space-time that these, these waves create when you w- wiggle massive objects requires absolutely specialized equipment. We've had guests on this show that have talked about LIGO, for example. These are very big observatories being built in several locations to try and detect gravity waves, gravitational waves. They, they haven't done so so far. Is that correct? That's correct. And they're very expensive, but in my opinion, worthwhile to do it because most people believe that Einstein's theory of relativity is the correct theory of gravity, at least to our current limits of knowledge. And so, therefore, gravitational waves should exist. And matter of fact, we even, we even have better reason to believe that they exist from earlier pulsar observations. The Joe Taylor and Russell Hulse binary pulsar that ended up getting the Nobel Prize, what they actually detected was the change in the orbit of those pulsars, or the pulsar and the neutron star. It was actually shrinking because it's giving off energy. And the energy loss from that binary system they thought was exactly predicted by Einstein's theory of relativity as the emission of gravitational waves. So we think they're out there. That last confirming beautiful test of general relativity would be this direct detection, and that's why there's a lot of money being spent worldwide on LIGO and things like I'm working on uh, nanograv in order to make these detections. Okay, so to sum it up, detecting gravitational waves would allow us to confirm this theory from 1915, 100 years ago, of general relativity by Einstein, which is, after all, a very fundamental thing. How are you going to use pulsars to detect gravity waves? Yeah, so the detection of gravitational waves with pulsars is a kind of an interesting little trick because the way that they do it for LIGO, for instance, which is a big laser facility um, that's built on the ground and that uses... These, these interferometers, they call it. So they bounce light waves back and forth between mirrors on the ground, and they, they measure how the difference in, in the amount of time it takes the light to bounce back and forth between these two massive objects. And if they see time changes, they know that space-time is being stretched. Well, with pulsars, we don't have a laser that we can bounce back and forth, so we actually have to use the pulsars themselves spread throughout the galaxy. But the pulsar and the Earth serve as these massive objects that were bouncing light back and forth. But instead of using our own light that we generate, the pulsar is nicely generating that for us. And so we measure those pulses and and look for little differences in the way those pulses arrive at Earth. And that's how we can potentially detect gravitational waves. Well, let me see if I understand this. Are, Are you saying that, you know, some big gravity wave is moving through the galaxy generated by who knows what? So maybe a couple of stars collided over there. Who knows what? And that gravity wave interacts with the pulsar over there, but it also acts with the Earth over here, and we look for some sort of correlation? That's exactly right. So we think that there are these incredibly long period, very slow gravitational waves that are moving throughout the whole universe, and therefore through our galaxy and through you and I right now. 
when you have two extraordinarily massive, supermassive black holes orbiting each other. And we think this happens in the centers of galaxies throughout the universe. These supermassive black holes kind of orbit each other on tens of years timescales. And when they're doing that, they're generating these tens of years, very slow ripples in space-time, which are moving through our galaxy. And if we can t monitor and time these pulsars spread across the whole sky, we'll see, like a pulsar from one direction, all of its signals will be a little bit early. Pulsars from another direction will be a little bit late. And so we're looking for this kind of, this very specific pattern between the way the pulses arrive at Earth, spread across the whole sky, because gravitational waves are rippling space-time throughout the whole galaxy. This sounds like a tough observational problem. I mean, <laughs> are you using radio telescopes to do this? I presume you are. You're looking at the radio pulses from these pulsars. But, gosh, you got to look at a lot of different things and be very accurate about it. Yeah, it requires extraordinarily large telescopes because pulsars are very faint objects. So we need the biggest radio telescopes on Earth. Um, so we use the Arecibo Telescope in Puerto Rico, which is the largest radio telescope, as well as the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia, uh, which is a fantastic fully steerable dish. And uh, so we can observe many different pulsars around the sky. But because we're looking for very slow gravitational waves, we have to do this basically weekly or monthly over time periods of many, many years. So we got to be patient. If we want that third Nobel Prize for pulsars, we got to sit and wait and be patient and do our work very carefully. <laughs> well, are you making a joke there? Is that serious? I mean, could this qualify you for the Nobel Prize? Just put it that way. I think a lot of people believe so. I think the first detection of gravitational waves, wherever it comes from, as long as it's a confirmed detection, that will be Nobel Prize material. And so I think there's a, the pulsar effort is kind of the dark horse candidate because there's been a lot of worldwide effort expended and a lot of U.S. money spent on LIGO. And there's, they're probably going to do it in the next five years. But there's a real chance that the, the pulsar astronomers around the world could pull off a little coup and, and do it first. And so we like to make jokes about it. Uh, but it's, there's actually a real chance. Scott Ransom, thank you so very much for uh, talking with us. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Scott Ransom is an astronomer at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Charlottesville, Virginia. Now, here's something in nature that's maybe the invisibility champ, nature itself. Yes, we all know that matter is made of atoms and that atoms are made of neutrons and protons and electrons and quarks. And, but really, what are those made of? Enter string theory. According to physicist Lee Smolin in his book, The Trouble with Physics, string theory was going to give us the ultimate structure of matter, the atom's atom, if you will, as well as explain all the forces of nature, that's all. But it doesn't seem to be turning out that way. You see, the ambition of string theory was to be the unique unification of all the forces that we know about, and therefore to predict and to explain a great many things about nature such as why we have these laws rather than other laws, why this set of elementary particles and this set of forces rather than others, why do the particles have the masses and the charges that they do rather than others. And string theory had the ambition to explain those things because it was meant to be or believed to be briefly the unique way to unify all those things. But as it developed, it turned out it was the opposite of unique. It came in an infinite number of different versions, which led to different versions of physics. So it had no predictive content for doable experiments. One of the seductive aspects of string theory in the early days, as I understand it, was that you would just work out this theory and it would do things like bring gravity into the fold of the standard sure. model, whatever. I mean, it would unify physics, the grand theory of everything or whatever. It had this promise. It was a shining light on the hill, but it didn't work out that way. It, what is but it? there were other hills. For example, loop quantum gravity is a, is a hill with a shining light on top of it which is a different approach to unification. Causal dynamical triangulations is a hill with a shining light. And if I can make a metaphor that my friend Eric Weinstein makes, there are two kinds of scientists. There are hill climbers and there are valley crossers. If you're a hill climber, you're better than anybody else at going up. If we place you somewhere on a hill, you'll go up. The problem with having too many hill climbers in the scientific community is they tend to accumulate at the top of hills, mill around the shining beacons, which may have been the wrong hill and the wrong beacon, and they don't know how to go down. What we need is the people who go down when everybody else is going up and get lost in the valley, in the deserts, in the jungles, ford the rivers between the hills, and discover new hills, which may eventually be, lead us to the right hill. 
You've mentioned loop quantum gravity here. For many people, that's kind of a mysterious concept. Can you explain how that differs from this idea that everything's made of little vibrating strings? Yes. It comes from taking the equations and the principles of general relativity and the principles and the equations of quantum mechanics and simply putting them together in the right way. And string theory and other approaches were motivated by taking too seriously earlier failures to put quantum mechanics and relativity together. It turns out you can put them together in a consistent way. There is a right way to put them together, and that's loop quantum gravity. So it's no new ideas, no new principles. It's just the principles of quantum mechanics and general relativity put together in the right way. What it gives us is a picture of the nature of space at very, very, very short distances, at a scale 20 powers of 10 smaller than the atomic nucleus, where space becomes atomic. Space is no longer smooth at that scale. It becomes atomic. And by solving those equations, which were general relativity and quantum theory put together, we can make a precise description of this atomic geometry. It still could be wrong. It still has not been tested experimentally. And that's because the scale of this atomic structure of space is too small. So we're in a position just like people were in the 19th century where they theorized about atoms, but the atoms were too small to detect in any experiment that they knew how to do. That had to wait for Einstein in 1905 and 1906. Okay, so, so loop quantum gravity is in, in some sense in a similar boat to string theory in that it's all done on blackboards, not in the labs. What about other kinds of ideas in physics like parallel universes, for example. I mean, nobody's thought of an experiment that's been able to prove whether they exist or not, and yet it's kind of fashionable. And I think that's a problem. You know, science is not about what might be true. Science is what it can be convincingly argued to be true from using logic deduced from evidence that experiments and observations give us. Science is a story. We have a story to tell, but it's a story that is based on testability and continual confrontation of the elements of the story with experiment. And when we scientists ask questions which go beyond where the experiment can take us, we are in danger of becoming just storytellers without being tied down, without being constrained by experiment. And that, to me, is dangerous. We love to believe the stories we make up. The whole point of being a scientist, what you get taught when you go to school to become a scientist, is how to detect errors, how to check your ideas, how to check your work. Speculation is fine as long as it's clearly labeled speculation. If the public enjoys, if a scientist enjoys speculating about other universes, that's fine as long as it's clearly labeled as speculation and not established fact. Well, Lee, finally, this is almost philosophical, but... Our little brains, they're three-pound brains, <laughs> whatever, one and a half kilos. Do you think that Mine we, is two pounds. Is, is yours two pounds? <laughs> okay. I'm Some sure. of it excised. Do we have the intellectual heft, in your opinion, to ever figure this stuff out? Is nature really amenable to understanding by three-pound brains? I believe it's worth going under that assumption. The great philosopher Leibniz, who was a rival to Newton, enunciated a principle called the principle of sufficient reason, that for every question we could ask about the natural world, about why is it like this rather than like that, there must be a sufficient explanation, not just a, a theory, but it must be a rational explanation why the world is the way it is for every question that you could ask. That might be true, that might not be true, but it's motivation to uphold, to guide us and inspire us. So, you know, science is very young. Science, the way we do it, the way we organize it, is just a few centuries old. And we've come so far, so fast, I think it's way too soon to be worrying about whether there are limits. There may very well be limits, but let's let people in 500 years worry about that. Lee Smolin, thank you so very much for being with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. In theory and in fact, Lee Smolin works as a theoretical physicist at the Perimeter Institute of Theoretical Physics in Canada. For many of us, there's a vast and unknown territory close to hand and much larger than a vibrating string. Next, mapping the ocean floor. It's Invisible Worlds on Big Picture Science.
spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Some people gripe that we have better maps of Mars than we do of our own ocean floor. And that may be true, but... It's better now than it once was. And a woman named Marie Tharp helped make it so, writes Hallie Felt in her book, Soundings, the story of the remarkable woman who mapped the ocean floor. And working in the 1950s, when very few women were oceanographers, Marie Tharp knew something herself of what it was like to be invisible. Hallie, I've seen plenty of maps of the world, and some of those maps are pretty old, centuries old, but until recently, all of them depicted the ocean simply as big blank blue areas. What did people imagine was under all that water before the modern era? Well, it's really interesting. People sort of had this idea, like you said, that there are these vast, big, blank blue areas. And some people thought it was just this place of respite. So it was really sort of this uninteresting place that no one really had any inkling of, you know, why it was important or why it would be interesting. So no one really wanted to go and work down there. But surely, Holly, there were soundings, at least of the coastal areas, especially after, what, the 18th and 19th century. I mean, they must have known the depths of some parts of the ocean just by dropping a line with a weight at the end into the water. Mm-hmm. So in ancient Greece, they had sounded certain areas, but I forget who it was who said that the oceans were immeasurably deep, so there would never be any way for them to know what the entire ocean was like underneath all that water, how deep it was, what it looked like. And that's why we have myths like the myth of Atlantis, right? Where there are these ideas that there's this whole big buried city down there. I think that's why that could happen because there was no idea what was down there. And so people just made things up, basically. Well, today I have a map in my office that shows as much topographical relief underwater as on the continents. I mean, there are mountains, there are strange ridges, whatever. And according to your book, that map owes a great deal to a little-known woman by the name of Marie Tharp. Tell me who she was. She was a very interesting character, and she was an amazing scientist. For most of her life, she worked at Columbia University. And today, still at Columbia, there's a part called the Lamont Daugherty Earth Observatory. And she worked there, basically, men would go out on ships, collect soundings, bring them back to her, and she would compile all of them to create these beautiful maps of the ocean floor. She was trained in geology, mathematics. She had some interest in drafting, and that's how she first started mapping the ocean floor. And if anybody knows her name, that's what they know her for. I have to ask, were there other women at Lamont who were also doing research? There were not women at Lamont doing research at the time, I don't believe, and I'm not 100% sure about that. But she wasn't doing research in the very beginning. She was an assistant, so she was drawing pictures of instruments that they were developing there. She was doing calculations, so she was basically a human computer. And it's not until four years later when she actually quits her job and runs away because she's so bored again. And Doc, Morris Ewing, begs her to come back, and she does. And he says, okay, you can do some work that's a little bit more difficult. So that's when she starts mapping the ocean floor. Okay, so this was a time in which women were not expected or even wanted as researchers, right? I mean, they were to to be receptionists or secretaries or whatever. Exactly. So there were these four things, right? You could be a nurse, you could be a school teacher, you could be a social worker, or you could be a secretary. So Marie was really breaking out of this mold and going and working in the sciences. It was very rare at the time. All right. Well, let's consider the data that she was going to turn into something that was a big discovery eventually. I mean, Lamont was a lab devoted to studying the oceans, also the interior of the earth. Mm -hmm. And so in the 1950s, shortly after she was hired, they had the ability to sound the bottom of the ocean. In other words, to sail a ship across the ocean and all along the way to somehow figure out how deep the water was. Right. Back then, what they were doing is they were sailing a ship across the ocean and directly underneath that ship, 
there would be this very thin line where they would be able to figure out exactly the depth of the ocean. And the way that they would figure that depth out is they would send out a ping and they would measure how long it took for the ping to return to the ship. And then they'd have to divide it by two, right? Because it was bouncing off the ocean floor and then coming back. And there was an instrument called a fathometer or an echo sounder that would then record that depth. So it would make a little line. And so on a piece of paper that would come out of that instrument would be this recording that looked like sort of like a fuzzy undulating line that would actually depict the changes in topography on the ocean floor. Okay, but that just tells you what the depth of the ocean floor was underneath right. that ship track. Exactly. And, and, and how many ship tracks did they have? I mean, there aren't going to be a lot of ships with the equipment to make this kind of a profile. Well, a lot of ships had the equipment, but it was really interesting because back then there were all these ships traveling around collecting all this data, and no one was really doing anything with it. So it was piling up at these research universities, and it was piling up at Lamont until this day in the fall of 1952 when the man that Marie ended up working with for the rest of her life, his name was Bruce Hazen, he comes into her office and he says, you know, here are all these ship tracks. So we're talking about like, you know, thousands at this point. They're all rolled up and he says, let's do something with these. Let's figure out what the ocean floor looks like. So then she has to do all sorts of things with them. She has to convert the depths because sound travels at different speeds through water of different temperatures and different salinities. So the amount of salt affects how sound travels. And she also had to splice together the ship tracks because it's not that a ship would just go from the east coast of the United States to, say, Europe. It would actually do it in several passes. So it might go to, like, Bermuda or it might go halfway across the ocean and then come back and then it might do another leg of the trip. So she would be splicing them together. And when you look at these maps, they look like an illustration from a science fiction book. I mean, they're absolutely gorgeous. And this is something that we've never seen before. This is a place that we've never seen, and we're actually not ever going to be able to see firsthand. So it was really a kind of interpolation that she had to do. I mean, she Absolutely. has a track here, and then she has another track, you know, mm -hmm. 20 miles farther away, I don't know, north or south. I don't. Yeah, it was hundreds of miles. So hundreds her, of miles. Yeah, her first map was of the North Atlantic Ocean. And when she started this map, she had only six passes, so six ship tracks stretching from, let's say, you know, a little bit south of Iceland down to, you know, the southern United States. So if you imagine six clotheslines stretched across the Atlantic Ocean, that's what we're talking about. So that's where she had exact data. And everywhere she didn't have exact data, she had to interpolate. She had to use other types of information to figure out what was happening there on the ocean floor. So not just anybody could have done this. She had special talents. Exactly. So because she was so interested in math and chemistry and physics, she was able to use all of this to say, okay, well, I don't have exact data in every place for the ocean floor, but I can use all of this other information. And I'm willing to use all of this other information because I'm the kind of person who really likes to think in an interdisciplinary way. So she was using information about water temperatures and saying, well, okay, there must be some sort of really large feature here on the ocean floor that's preventing the water from flowing. Or she was able to use all of these cores you plunge a tube into the earth and then you pull it back out and you get this long strip that's kind of like a recording of the sediments of the earth. She was able to use those and figure out what was going on. And the most important thing that she used was earthquake epicenters. What was going on is that in her office there was another person mapping these earthquake epicenters all across the face of the earth. And this person was doing it at the same scale as the map that she was working on. And she noticed that the path of the earthquake epicenters was the same as the path of this rift valley that she was starting to discover on the ocean floor. And that actually when they placed the two maps over top of each other, the earthquake epicenters fell directly within this rift valley. And so using that information, she was able to extend this rift valley all across the face of the earth for 40,000 miles. Well, tell us more about that rift valley, because in the North Atlantic, I believe they call that the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Mm -hmm. uh, is that where she found it first in the North Atlantic? She did. She, so that's where she was working first with those six passes that I told you about. And as she was mapping them, she started to see that there was this cleft basically in this ridge that people knew that that ridge was there for maybe a couple hundred years because they'd been doing very basic sounding but she saw that there was this cleft there there was this rift and when she told bruce hazen that she'd found this rift valley he said oh no no it can't be 
it's girl talk. You're daydreaming. So he was insulting her, right? And another reason that it couldn't be was because at the time, what we now call plate tectonics and what was then called continental drift was considered scientific heresy. So if there was a rift valley, that kind of proved that the earth was made of plates and that they might be moving because a rift is a place where two plates are being pushed apart by magma welling up from beneath the Earth's surface. So this discovery was very controversial at the time. It was controversial with her partner. It was controversial within Lamont. And then when they announced this discovery, it was also controversial. But it is actually the thing that sort of exploded the idea of continental drift and led to scientists being able to develop these theories of plate tectonics. Well, I'm not a geologist, but I have to say that the discovery of plate tectonics certainly ranks as maybe the number one discovery of all geology. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't know Marie Tharp's name. I mean, you do. I do now. But Mm -hmm. most people don't. Yeah. You know, why, why, isn't, why doesn't she have a medal from Stockholm in her drawer somewhere? <laughs> well, so we don't give out Nobel Prizes in geology. So that's one reason. What happened is that she was working in a visual medium. So she was creating maps, right? And it's easy to say, well, somebody doesn't need to have any information. They don't need to have any specialized knowledge or intellect in order to create a map. They're just drawing something. But if you think about it past sort of the surface level, you can say, okay, well, she wasn't doing that because she couldn't see what she was drawing and she had very little data to work from. So what she was doing was actually much more complicated. So she created these maps. And then what happened is that all of these other people, men, came along and started writing all of these theories, developing all of these theories, writing papers. And what they were doing was looking at her maps. But they weren't citing her maps, which is really problematic, right? Because without those maps to look at, they wouldn't have had anything to write about. Has that been remedied? Well, in some ways, I think within the scientific community and especially within geology, people know her name. I mean, the maps are hanging on the walls of geology departments all over the country. But at the same time, when I go do talks and things and I talk about the importance of Marie and I tell people what I just told you, which is that if you don't have anything to look at, how are you going to write the papers? Scientists will come up to me and they'll say, well, I never thought of it that way. And I think that's really fascinating that something so simple can be overlooked in that way. Hallie Felt, thank you so very much for talking with us. Thank you. Holly Felt is the author of Soundings, the story of the remarkable woman who mapped the ocean floor. And thanks to our production team. You can't see them, but you can hear their hard work. Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. And thanks to support from Rena Sholsky David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to invisible worlds. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, you might also find and download our Big Picture Science app. You can find it on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. If you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because it's just part of your idiosyncratic machismo, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like this show. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. Monsters are as old as humanity itself. Monsters embody our fears. Yet, they help us define the boundaries of what it means to be human. We know most monsters aren't real. Yet, we can use monsters to learn about reality. Psychology, biology, folklore, literature, critical thinking. We're on a journey to learn about the world through the lens of monsters. And we hope you'll come along with us. Subscribe at monstertalk.org.